Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. I sat down with Jonas Albert and Fabian Roy to talk about the European digital health environment, sustainable models and what hurdles you should avoid to be successful in this field. As always, I'm keeping the interview short since we're going to hear each other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. Hi everyone, um, welcome to Talking the Cure. I already introduced them briefly in my fancy introduction, but obviously both of them, Jonas and Fabien, can better introduce themselves. So before we dive deep into the topic, Jonas, why don't you talk a bit about yourself, what you do? Sure, gladly. So hello everyone, my name is Jonas Albert. I'm from Germany, but have spent the last six years of my life working actually in Belgium. I have a background in economics and law, specialized then in academically into a healthcare system, European health law, but also business and innovation for healthcare, especially digital healthcare. And that's what I worked mainly on for the last six years. I worked in Belgium, closely affiliated to the Flemish University in Brussels and a research institute called IMEC who do a lot of technological research, a lot of very interesting stuff. And there was mainly involved in projects surrounding the valorization, exploitation of uh, digital healthcare technologies. So everything from wearables, AI, so AI driven software and so on, which was quite interesting, especially in terms of how does commercialization or how does uptake change based on in which European country you go to market with what other societal aspects that impact how successful some healthcare products are. What are the different regulatory requirements and so on? And but at the moment, I'm working in Berlin. I just returned for a project that is financed by the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs. It's called the Health Reality Lab Network. It's a project consortium whose goal it is to support and also to a certain amount financially support entrepreneurs that have digital health innovations with their business models, especially to create sustainable business models for the Europe, for the German market, but also larger scope for the European market as well. So that's, I think, enough for me at the moment. <laughs> that's what I do in a nutshell. Thank you. Fabien, we had you on here, but um, I think you definitely need to introduce yourself as well. So let us know where you work at Hogan Levels and what you do. Sure. Thank you, Julius, and uh, thank you, Janais. Hi, everyone. So I'm Fabien Roy, I'm partner at Hogan Lovell Space in Brussels, and um, I'm practicing in the pharma and medical device areas for about 13 years now. What I'm doing is I'm advising pharma and, and device companies on the regulation of their product. So this this can include, you know, uh, digital health innovation such as uh, software, you know, used for various medical purposes. We advise startups, but also uh, larger companies. And, and what is, is a trigger is really the regulation of the product and how we can uh, help our clients, you know, to get on the market as quickly as possible and, and make the product uh, a success without, you know, uh, ignoring, you know, the, the requirements which are more and more stringent in the EU. The, the other aspect I would say is we, we do a lot of multi-jurisdictional projects. You know, today's topic will be about the EU in general, but there are a lot of, let's say, variations in the way products are regulated in the EU member states. And in Brussels, we do take this type of multi-jurisdictional project as well and help clients, you know, navigate, you know, these different EU and EU member state requirements. Thank you. Both of you more likely spoiled the topic which we are going to cover today already. <laughs> so <laughs> the search of uh, digital health innovations in Europe and especially how they are kind of getting to a sustainable model. I would like to leave the stage to you. So go on, let me know what you think, what you saw so far, um, especially Jonas, your view from kind of a, the European perspective, uh, the well, kind of the German perspective you mm -hmm. are having now. Yeah. I think there's a quite an interesting or there has been a quite an interesting develop development in Europe regarding digital health innovations because there is so there has been this the US always this big example of how healthcare is done or healthcare innovation is done where we have more and more 
wearables driven and in hospitals, we have more and more commercial digital solutions. But the same type of upsurge has not really been happening in Europe. And the main reason for that is really because how healthcare systems are financed, but also how the individual is socialized within the systems. For example, what I now realized, especially now coming also back to Germany, is in Germany, there is not the expectation to have money in your hands when you go to the doctor. For example, this is this little difference in Belgium. Every time you go, you visit DGP, you pay 30 euros. In Germany, you don't. And that little difference alone already really changes your perspective, your view on what do I pay for and what do I don't pay for. And that obviously can be a huge hurdle for digital health innovations when they're not properly reimbursed. And I think reimbursement and having the necessary legal documentation ready, these are really the two main key points currently that are necessary for any digital health solution in Europe to be successful and sustainable on the market. For us, we're currently, as you probably all know, and I think there was also a talking in the Cure podcast about this already, there's new legislation, which our project, the Health Reality Network, is also closely involved with in Germany. It's about bringing digital health applications, they're called within the law, into reimbursement via a specific process. And that's also part of the, the tasks that we fulfill is that we support these providers, these developers of these solutions in gaining, uh, getting the necessary evidence, obtaining their CE marking. That's another um, prerequisite. And I think it will be quite interesting in the future whether or not the big experiment that's Germany doing, because the legislation there is the most advanced in all of Europe in terms of getting digital health solutions into reimbursement. It will be very interesting to see, do other European countries take this up? Will there be hybrid solutions or will there be something completely different or will digital health solutions always stay this kind of alien separate part from traditional healthcare? And that's something that we're really excited to see, I think, in the near future. And Jonas, it's interesting, you know, what you're saying, you know, do, do, so two questions for you. Do you see a surge, you know, in the number of requests you receive from clients in the uh, digital health area? And two, you say that Germany is, is one of the most advanced member states, you know, when it comes to uh, helping companies, you know, getting reimbursement for digital health application. What's the motivation of the German authorities behind you know, this leadership in Europe. I think that's, that's mm. interesting to, to hear your view here. I think that's a, two very interesting questions. I think the first one is, can I can quite clearly answer with a broad yes. So there is an uptake, there's more and more companies coming to us. I mean, obviously that also has something with to do because we are a state finance project. So they're not really clients, they're more like partners and we, we support them obviously via the state funding that we have. So that's quite a nice position because they don't have to pay anything and they get the, the, uh, all the consulting, all the information for free. Well, until March next year when the project ends. But overall, there's more interest in the market in digital health because now there's the road to reimbursement as well, obviously in Germany. But even before when I was still working in Belgium, I've been working with EIT Health, for example, and it was coming more and more the interest from startup companies that have a digital health product that originally wanted to go the consumer route. So just do the B2C, like, I don't know, like, for example, Apple Watch or Samsung wearables are doing it at the moment. And they want to do the same thing for their apps, but they felt that they would not reach, at least in Europe, not with this model critical mass. So they were now approaching like the IT Health or other entities in Europe to see if there would be avenues towards reimbursement. And it's this demand, I think, in Germany, to go to your second question, this demand, higher demand of companies of in, with a lot of innovative potential and a lot of potential to increase patient outcomes, to make lives better, increase quality of life, and to make people less sick, to put it in the broadest way possible, that also led to this new legislation in Germany. But I think it's also, if you're really fair, the German Minister of Health is ambitious in general, and the amount of legislations that Jens Spahn has put out is tremendous. It's quite a lot of different legislative documents. And so this was also a prestige project because the German healthcare system is notoriously anti-digital. So we're talking about, I mean, even when I directly compare this to Belgium, like the communication with insurance companies and stuff like this, there's so much more paper-based things in Germany compared to other European countries. Not all of them, of course, but Germany being such a 
tech leadership nation, or at least branding itself as one, the healthcare system has been notoriously yeah, outdated in terms of digitization, especially. And so I think this push, what was one out of necessity, then also two out of, for the reason that I think the minister wanted to sharpen his profile. But the third reason is also there is demand. And if you have really bright people, bright engineers, people with really great ideas and bright young medical scientists that have something that can create patient value, but you have no means of capturing this value because the company dies because they can't get enough revenue because they can't get into the reimbursement system. And that was the core of the problem that I think they wanted to alleviate. Mm -hmm. Do you have a similar situation from the companies that you interact with or? Yeah, I would say for, um, for the rise five years, you know, we have, you know, a weekly request, you know, from clients in the digital health area for advice. You know, advice, you know, will go from is my software, my application, you know, regulated as a medical device or not to mm. a request to review or help them with the development of the technical documentation, understanding, you know, which standards, you know, are applicable to the product what type of clinical evidence they need to gather, you know, to demonstrate that their uh, software is complying with the medical device legislation. But also uh, a number of post-market requests, you know, for example, cyber security um, uh, issues, you know, in the digital health uh, sphere, you know, this is a common issue. You know, we have also um, a new legislation to protect, you know, personal data. Personal data has a high value, you know, and, mm. and that's why we see more and more cybersecurity attack. And so clients, you know, often developed, or at least in the past, developed their uh, software application to comply with the medical device legislation, but not necessarily uh, with a view that, you know, they should also comply with high standard in terms of protection of their uh, data and, and the data of their customers. Mm. Yeah. So these are the, the type of requests we also have. And, and yeah, this is increasing. Uh, and so we can see that, you know, there is a real need, you know, for, uh, let's say, governmental, you know, approach, you know, of the digitalization of the, the market in the medical mm. device sector, but also in the pharma sector. And we see more and more initiatives you mentioned Germany, but I think there are also initiatives in other countries like uh, France and also non-governmental initiatives, you know, with um, association, you know, federation, you know, lobbies, you know, uh, representing, you know, digital health companies, you know, trying to spread, you know, messages and, and influence the legislation and guidance. I think that's, that's interesting, especially because that you mentioned more different players, like you said, okay, that's also for pharma, for bigger, for smaller companies. And... What's really interesting for me is the, because the, I mean, we're talking about digital health applications or products, but obviously that's a wide range of different products. But at the same time, it represents like a new sector of care that's currently, yeah, finding its way into either its own separate existence or it will be dissolved in other sectors. But for example, when we look from the pharma perspective, then they they will most likely or some of them will maybe just see this as an add-on to their existing medication so for them they would only have to see is this safe secure enough does it comply with the standards but they would not seek extra reimbursement for it they just want to be able to deploy whereas for example if you have a standalone solution that has curative power on its own to again put it in the broadest sense like for example i don't know a weight loss app that's clinically validated and so on then you need both. You need like the, the CE marking, everything legislation, and then also the necessary evidence that maybe goes beyond what you did for the, for the CE marking in order to obtain the reimbursement. But my question is always, how will other countries, where will they place the digital, the, the digital health applications or the digital health innovations in general? Like what will be the reimbursement like? Will it be analog like in Germany, analog to medical devices? It's also that the ministry that's responsible for medical devices is governing the whole process for the reimbursement and not the national entity. Yeah, that's the Gemeinsame Bundesausschuss, the, the, the Joint Federal Committee, that's the English word, that's responsible for green lighting drugs and also the reimbursement for the medical, for other medical devices as well. And I wonder how other countries will do this. Will they put them more like in the same corner of drugs? I always think they need a separate type of, of reimbursement and also maybe a separate type of standards. Because as you said, 
you get a post-market request for cybersecurity. So apparently in the initial process, obviously with digital health, cybersecurity is an aspect that's very important for everyone. It's important not only for the companies themselves or for the consumers, but also it's important for the whole industry of digital health innovation because if you lose trust, and we had this in Germany a couple of years ago where there was a big trust loss through some patient records being yeah, via brute force hacking methods very easily penetrated and then also where data could be extracted. And that really, you could really see a dip in trust in public perception. And that's something that's quite important to prohibit, I think. But yeah, it's it's interesting, especially for example, in, I mean, in Belgium, you also have like the Mobi, Mobi Health Initiative, and that's also directly from the Ministry of Health. But there they place it more into the mobile health. So the mobile aspect of digital health innovation that smartphone based on the go and is more in the terms of replacing face to face services with these mobile services, which is obviously an interesting aspect, but it does not incorporate the whole. And I would be really interested in when, when will somebody come up with a legislation that does everything separately or whether or not that should be desired. Like, for example, to have ACE marking a classification, for example, that would be dedicated to digital health software or digital health hardware, for example. Right. Do you think that's yeah. realistic or desirable? Well, you know, when it comes to the classification of software, probably not because we already have, you know, a different classification, you know, depending on the risk, you know. You know, with software application regulated as medical devices, you know, we can go from low risk to very high risk, you know. Mm. Um, when you are monitoring a health rate, you know, patient, and you are relying on an app, you know, to give you alarms when something goes wrong, this is a high risk, you know, a software application. If you are just, you know, taking an application, you know, intended to scan the skin, you know, to potentially detect, you know, um, an area of of concern, you know, but which does not do a direct diagnosis, you know, we are talking about low risk device, you know, it's just mm -hmm. uh, a net to the healthcare professional. So that's why, you know, a single classification is, is maybe not what we want to, to have. And, you know, having common legislation for uh, all the digital health, you know, devices application could also be uh, very complicated. You know, I'm just giving the example of telemedicine, for example. Telemedicine, you know, uh, yeah. is digital health, you know. We have legislation, you know, at the EU member state level concerning digital health and, and telemedicine, but this is not harmonized. This is not harmonized mm. because telemedicine is used, you know, with medical device equipment, with healthcare professionals and with uh, pharmaceutical product, you know. It has a variety of, of purposes, you know, and all these different purposes, you know, the regulation of medicine, the regulation of devices, the regulation mm. of pharmaceuticals, you know, have their own legislation. So I think it's, it's difficult, you know, to make digital health, you know, one single box. And at the top of that, we have additional legislation that we mentioned, for example, the data protection legislation you know, the cybersecurity standards, you know, all of this will apply to this digital health solution at the top, you know, of the uh, product regulation. So it's, it's very complicated. Now, when it comes to uh, governmental initiatives, I think it's, it would make sense to have a single approach to all these digital health, you know, solution. When it comes to reimbursement, for example, it's not an issue to have three categories of product, you know, or, uh, medical device, pharma, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, reimbursement should be assessed, you know, based on the, the value the digital health services is bringing, you know, to the, to the health sector, you know, to the patients, you know, in general. I don't know what, what you think mm. you're the, the expert for reimbursement. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting topic and a question because, I mean, just the question of how value in healthcare is measured or has been measured in Europe. I mean, that's already widely different. I mean, in the countries that adopted the quality of life, uh, like quality adjusted life years approach. I mean, even for them, they have different prices for what a healthy life year could cost. But then now with the digital domain, I think there, because there's so many aspects that either directly or indirectly influence the, um, the patient well-being. For example, if you have digital health in interventions that make care more accessible or make the patient more informed, for example, these are, for example, at the moment already covered under the German Digital Care Act. But how they're quantified, I think that's one of the most interesting things that will develop at the moment. 
because we're also the, just to give you a quick overview over how it's done currently in Germany, you have these different positive care effect category. Some of them are medical, like for example, make the patient healthier, how you quantify this depending on the disease, not, not closer defined, just has to adhere to good medical practice. So you always have to argue, okay, do I increase health status when I increase or decrease this parameter X or Y for a patient? You have a shortening of the, of the um, time of the disease until it's cured or until it, until it is at a stable status that it, for chronic diseases, for example, where it stays. Or there is also the, the third aspect of increasing quality of life. But Germany does not have a history of using quality adjusted life years for, to calculate how they reimburse drugs or medical devices. So that's also kind of new how this will be quantified. So nobody really knows, especially because what's interesting in Germany, there's a decoupling between the getting into reimbursement and the actual price negotiation. And whereas, for example, in other European countries, like in the UK, that could never happen because with the NHS, everything is inevitably linked together. If you get into, into care together with the NHS, there will be the price negotiations will be part of the deal, obviously. Whereas in Germany now it's decoupled. So you make the list, the, so the, um, Verzeichnis according to paragraph 139 of the Digital Care Act law. And then afterwards you negotiate with the federal committee of the public insurance companies in Germany. What, what price you get per patient or per year or per, yeah. It's all really uncertain at the moment. So what you said, really how they will actually measure the value. There are so many different aspects there that, that are still to, to discover, especially because for medical effects that I just mentioned, obviously there's literature you can fall back on, or there's drugs that have similar effects like stabilizing blood pressure or blood sugar or whatever. But then when it comes to the second category of positive care effects, these are let's say unconventional ones that haven't been taken into account as much. These are, for example, better access to care, increasing adherence to any therapy or to medication via a digital health application or to increase patient sovereignty. So, but then there are all these interesting questions, like for example, how do I measure that the patient is now more independent in their decision-making, obviously how much information they have and so on. And then also does this affect I mean, in my CE marking, I gave a purpose for my device or for my software, right? And when the purpose is to empower the patient, which sounds really soft and oftentimes is used just as a generic buzzword, okay, yay, patient empowerment, so what? But now they actually have to quantify it and that has to be part of the purpose of their device or the software. It's a question, for example, that I find extremely interesting because nobody will really knows yet how, how this will exactly be developed further. And also what will, which standards will come from this? So what will be the standardized way of proving that your digital health application has an impact on these unconventional, these process or patient, uh, patient oriented aspects that are not directly linked to their, well, let's say not immediately linked to their medical well-being. Well, for example, there's one point that's really revolutionary that this is now also open for reimbursement. That the point is about if the digital health application alleviates everyday life difficulties for the patient or their closest circle of kin, family, or, or the informal carer, so to speak. I think that would be the best way. And that's something that's really interesting because technically you will start quantifying hours worked or hours helped a patient by their kin, by their family, their children, their parents, whoever is caring for them. And then the healthcare system has to suddenly put a price on that, which they never had to do before. Mm -hmm. And I think within the rest of this year and within the next year in Germany, there will be a lot of precedence for other European countries to see what works and what doesn't work. And Jonas, uh, one question on reimbursement in, in, in Germany. You know that, you know, to see Mark, a medical device, you need to have, you know, good clinical evidence, you know, so you may rely on the literature, you know, if you can, or you may conduct your own clinical investigation to generate the clinical data. Do you see your customer coming with additional data to the clinical evidence they have for the for supporting CMARC, just for the purpose of the reimbursement, or do they come, you know, with the same clinical evidence and then, you know, potentially face issues, you know, at the reimbursement stage? I think that's an excellent question. That's also something that I wanted to ask you in return, what you think, because in practice, the clinical evidence that you need for the CE marking is not necessarily well suited to be used to provide proof for reimbursement. I mean, A, 
Obviously, the aspects that I just mentioned, these non-traditional aspects, like the structural or process optimizations, adherence and all the other stuff, these aspects are usually not part of the CE marking because it's usually just medically oriented clinical evidence. But even the clinical evidence is sometimes structured in a way that it's not necessarily well suited to make this application to get into reimbursement. But we even had this not only in Germany, we even had this in other countries. So they just do the bare minimum just to get the CE marking. But then in order to convince their payers, and that does not only have to be a public health system, but maybe sometimes they sell this to hospital, nursing homes, the value proposition towards them is either very specific or in some cases it's even non-medical in order, for example, for a nursing home, it would mainly count if they would be able to make the workflow of the nurses more efficient, but obviously to be seen as safe and secure and also purpose-driven enough, the clinical evidence they need for the CE marking is that they do the documentation right, that the hints the software gives, for example, just imagine if it's like a nursing support software for nursing homes. It has to be medically sound and okay and safe and secure, but the added value is not proven within the evidence you would gather for this study, for example. And that's something that I think would be interesting to see if we could harmonize this, because for a lot of, especially startups, it is quite, it's difficult to get the financial resources to make the study for the clinical evidence for the CE marking. But and then in addition to another study, for them to gain reimbursement, to gain the necessary evidence for that. And that's something that I always find, it's almost tragic sometimes because they have to choose or they just try to go with a conformity risk class one. I mean, in Germany, that's still possible. You can just like write down, you conform, I'm conform with risk class one according to the German medical device law. And then you don't have to do a clinical study at all. You don't have to gather any, any evidence. But then obviously this will also be over, when is it next year? May, when the when the MDR finally kicks in for good? Yeah, 26th of May. But actually, I just want to say, you know, even if you're a class one, you know, the, the principles remain the same. You still need to gather clinical evidence. Yeah. Uh, I think the only difference is that you don't have necessarily, you know, um, a notify body looking at your technical documentation to check that you have gathered that evidence. So I don't think, you know, that's the majority of, of uh, companies, you know, with a class one, but some companies, you know, uh, mainly in the past, you know, were going on the market, you know, C-marking their product without having either clinical evidence at all or sufficient clinical evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's going to change, yeah, next year with new classification rules, which will make, you know, a lot of these digital health, you know, solution subject to a conformity assessment involving a notify body, which is like a third party appointed, you know, a body, which is empowered to, to check the technical documentation and audit, you know, the quality management system of companies. What I would be interested, what, what you think about a specific topic, Fabian, is do you think it would be feasible to kind of when you assume okay you want to get your ce marking you're a company and you need to do a clinical trial or some sort of trial anyways it would be i, th I think it would be great if a company would tailor this trial in a way that the evidence can also be used in their target country to get reimbursement but currently that's really not done it's just seen as this one step and then, okay, let's see afterwards. I mean, and obviously you need different type of evidence for different types of countries. That's very clear. And also, or you have different value propositions sometimes. But I would really be interested. Do you think that could be maybe the future that you say, okay, I want to go to market in Czech Republic and Germany and the CE marking now I tailor that the evidence I generate will be favorable for a, a Bismarckian social health insurance system with public health insurers and the type of evidence that's demanded by the governments that steer these health these health insurance systems is A, B, C, D, and maybe points C and D go beyond what I would need for the CE marking study, but I will incorporate it anyway because it's cost-saving for me and decreases my time to market. Do you think that would be a realistic scenario in the future? I think that would be ideal. You know, whether or not it's going to work, you know, I think is another question. As you mentioned, yeah. you know... Um, we have an harmonized CE marking, you know, approach, you know, at the EU level, which is great. You know, it was based on a directive 
uh, and directives will be based on regulation in the future, so even more harmonization than under the directives. So we have a process, you know, in place, but still, you know, we have questions around, you know, what is the appropriate level of clinical evidence uh, mm. for, for a device? It actually depends on the device. It depends on what is the intended purpose of the device and, and the risk you know, of, of using the device, you know, for the user, uh, patients, healthcare professionals. However, I think I agree with you, you know, it would be very attractive if the EU could have also a similar harmonization, you know, for the reimbursement aspect. You know, if we will be able to say to uh, uh, manufacturers, um, well, if you design a study in this way, you will uh, meet, you know, the clinical study requirements and expectation to see mark your device, but also to uh, qualify for potential reimbursement mm. in the various EU member state. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or because at least like a, a directory, because I don't think that the member states will agree to harmonize their reimbursement schemes for the health systems, but at least that they make transparent criteria that are also open to everyone. Because, Absolutely, for example, yeah. yeah, because I mean, I already had several requests from the Benelux now. Hey, new law in Germany. What's this about? And obviously the hurdle is higher for other countries. And that would be something that might also be smart. I mean, we have freedom of goods, like, like, um, free transition of goods and services. It's one of the fundamental freedoms in the EU. And that should also go for health systems. I'm not saying that the EU has to harmonize the health systems and reimbursement has to be the same everywhere. Obviously that's, that's not going to happen. Like no. Italy will not change their regional <laughs> NHS driven system into like social health insurance just because the, the EU says so. But just to make it transparent or yeah, that it's a bit more reliable that you say, if I include these evidence categories and if I include this type of additional clinical evidence that I will gather in the study, then I have, yeah, as you said, a good chance or that could could make me eligible for reimbursement in these types of countries or this type of evidence is accepted by these countries. Yeah. And I think yeah. that I, I think I agree with you. What we can do is only to define, you know, objective, you know, criteria, you know, to potentially qualify for reimbursement. And I'm saying potentially because the social security system is different in all EU member states. And the member state will want to uh, preserve, you know, some uh discretionary power in the way, you yeah. know, they accept reimbursement application. And we see that yeah. in Belgium, for example, you know, product yeah. reimbursed, you know, three years ago are no longer reimbursed because the budget, there are some budget constraints and, yeah. you know, decision needs to be made, you know, and sometimes the decision are not super transparent. But if we have, you know, objective, you know, criteria, you know, in terms of generating clinical evidence for C-marking purpose and for reimbursement purpose, that will be um, a good step, you know, for, for mm. the medical device and pharma industry in Europe. Yeah, definitely. I have a nice... But, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, just chiming in here. I think the Europe-wide kind of reimbursement program would be beautiful to have. But on the other hand, and we touched a bit on it, um, the upcoming MDR and, and the search of the market and the innovation would we see now, from your perspective, will the MDR slow down this search or do you think it's just kind of an additional hurdle to take and what is going to happen in the next six months in comparison to what we've seen in the last couple of months? Jonas, maybe I start, you know, with this one, you know, you know the MDR is a legislation that was an expectation for many, many years. You know, it's true, you know, it will um, affect, you know, existing requirements and make them more, um, stringent, you know, on many aspects, uh, I don't think, you know, that will necessarily slow down, you know, innovation and the development of a digital health solution, at least for companies, you know, which are taking steps actively, you know, to update their technical documentation, you know, to talk to their notify body and have, you know, a positive approach, you know, of the changes in the, in the legislation. Uh, obviously, there are a number of companies, you know, which will face, you know, immediate obstacle uh, with the medical device regulation applicable, you know, from uh, next year 
because well, this is a work that requires you know many months of preparation and even if you as a company you're prepared you still need to work with uh, notify bodies you know which may not have the time to deal with your application you know for uh, uh, c marking whether it will affect you know long term you know i i don't think so uh, just because you know innovation is it's always you know stronger than the legislation and and is directly impacting the way legislation is changing you know it's because we have innovation that we need to have changes in the legislation for me obviously fabia is like the bigger expert on this topic but from the effect of the mbrs i mean you're correct because in your assumption that a lot of especially smaller startups are afraid of the mdr because they're a bit uncertain and will this be more expensive But I think the, the, in the beginning, there might be a short slowdown, but I think in the long term, especially when it comes to tackling Europe as a, as a whole market, I think then it will be, have a tremendous advantage. But I think also it will require to be really successful. It will require different thinking, especially from venture capital investors. Because at the moment, I have the feeling, I still have to confirm this one, but I have the feeling that the investment into digital health startups It's too similar to investing in other digital industries. And, but for digital health startups, you have these big hurdles. You have the hurdle one gets, get the CE marking and then hurdle two go into reimbursement. And you need a lot of initial investment that other traditional players in this, in this area, for example, in pharma, obviously this is completely normal that the millions and millions and millions are put into these two stages. But when it, when it's about venture capital for startups that's dedicated to obtaining a CE marking, for example, I don't know how far advanced it is that really VCs come and say, Hey, I will bring you over this hurdle. And afterwards the market is open to you. Mm -hmm. And I would be really interested also maybe to talk some investors at some point to say, why is this not like dedicatedly done? Because I think if investors are more sensibilized that the CE marking is a huge hurdle for young companies and to invest with the specific target to get them over there, then really lays the foundation for these companies being quite successful, no matter in which European country they choose to operate in. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, coming back to your original question, uh, Julius, you know, and, and uh, taking uh, Jonas' comments into consideration, it's true that before the MDR, you know, it was possible to see a market device within three months. With the MDR, uh, as I say, you, know, you need uh, preparation, you need to work with notify body, and that will require maybe uh, 12 months, you know, of uh, preparation and 12 months, you know, of uh, discussion with the notify body. Uh, that's, that's a potential timeline, you know, for software uh, companies, you know, hub company, digital health solution companies. And I think investors, you know, to your point, Jonas, investors will need to understand that as well. Uh, mm -hmm. It takes longer to get on the market, to have a C-mark, and then that's not uh, it. You know, you still need to go through the reimbursement process, which one is not harmonized, and two, it was not subject to preparation internally at the company level. Because if you generate clinical evidence for C-marking, doesn't mean you generate clinical evidence to satisfy one EU member state, you know, uh, requirements for reimbursement. Yeah, exactly. And this will be the make or break. And then on the other end, I mean, we're making it sound a bit like it's a horrible idea to invest in digital health innovations. No, no, no. It's the opposite because when these two hurdles are made, then, I mean, the market is huge. It's very, it, like the return on investment is more or less reliably to calculate because the purchasing decision, for example, in the German system now is then made by a doctor and it's a fixed price. And the populations potentially are huge and also spending in this sector is huge. And also it's completely crisis stable as well. So that's why it's a very highly gated market. It's just, and I completely agree with what I just, just said there, but it takes a little bit more time. The ramp up is not the same as if you just have your, I don't know, sell something over the internet startup. And that really has to be understood by investors. Maybe we're doing a lot of investors wrong that completely understood it and that completely have it. Then please feel free to reach out if you're listening to this, because it would be very too interesting to hear if you're out there. But at least from what I see, a lot of investors look very much to the US, like Rock Health and whatnot. And these seem to really focus on different digital health innovations that can either be sold to big hospital chains or to insurances or are successful in the B2C business. 
But obviously, in the US, when you're insured, even when you're insured and you have a job, you get sick, you lose your job, you lose your insurance, and then you are, yeah, catastrophic out-of-pocket spending for healthcare ensues. And obviously, you have a higher interest to make out-of-pocket spending to prevent <laughs> deterioration of health status. But obviously, the same thing with our strong security and our strong social nets in Europe, that the same logic can't be applied for consumer behavior. So also the same business models don't work. And henceforth, it's really worth in Europe, I think, to invest in the bit slower ramp up, but for to have the more sustainable route in the long run for digital health innovations to be within the system. Yeah. Because I think I, once they're in, yeah. I completely agree, Jonas. And maybe, so we mentioned two hurdles, you know, C-marking and reimbursement. Maybe we should, you know, uh, also add another one, which is preparation. You know, if you do not prepare well, you know, for these two obstacles, uh, mm. you are not necessarily going to fail, but you will lose time, you know, and, 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 and money at the end, you know, for, for, for your business. Uh, with a good preparation, you know, with a good advisor, a good data, you will be on the market quicker than your competitors. Yeah, exactly. And then also will make it much easier to attract even more investment and also to scale properly. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, that's also from, from our practice and from my time in Belgium, but also now in Germany, you often have, unfortunately, it's really often the case that, that you have some younger companies who very hastily construct some clinical studies, but then they find themselves in a situation where they can't use the evidence that they gathered, be it either for CE marking or to apply for reimbursement. And that's really a shame. But there's also a big conflict of interest there because when you work together with clinical groups, then sometimes they want to have a specific, maybe far too narrow patient group within the clinical trial that you're conducting with them because it will make a nice publication. But that's not the purpose of the clinical evaluation. It's supposed to evaluate the your patient group in all its broadness or narrowness depends on the innovation of course but to bring results that are then yeah that serve a specific purpose and that's not necessarily a high academic publication obviously studies should be conducted according to good clinical standards and everything but the purpose is really to provide evidence more than it is sometimes to gain more insight about this patient group and but obviously on the other hand if you do the study together with a big university clinic for example they also have to have an advantage from doing these studies together as partners. And that's, an, that's another hurdle to overcome, or at least something to be aware of, the different incentives for the different players there. But this is more likely something you have to think about right after you start and you planning your clinical studies and how you want to conduct and how you want to bring or how your plan is to bring the product to the market. Or if you, you the, I think there's the major conflict between like, universities and, and people who are really in the startup scene they said okay do we really want to kind of commercialize our product or is this mainly for science on science purposes and the outcome is potentially a product mm. which could come to the market but then who owns this product there there are different things i think the conflict between the studies conducted through universities and cooperation with a small startup which grew potentially out of the university from scientists that they're employed. Mm. Um, this is a different play field, I think. Mm. Um, and, and a way different hurdle to overcome before you even think about get your CE marking <laughs> as well as getting reimbursed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but, but that's really the planning aspect that Fabiana just mentioned. That's really like the, the, whole, the whole planning because usually at the moment, digital health innovations start with Either a lot of people are patient themselves or they have a nice algorithm, some piece of tech, and they say, oh, that could be useful in healthcare, and then kind of develops from there. But it's something, it's very easy to lose track of where do we want to go or what steps do I have to take in order to reach the, my desired state of the state of the world, which is I am deeply and fully <laughs> engulfed in the reimbursement processes in my target country. And this should be there from the beginning. And that's, yeah, it's sometimes even a bit schizophrenic when you think about it, because you have situations where companies start with a very extreme, clear patient focus. And obviously that's great. That's good. And that's desired by everyone. And also the narrative is very patient driven, but the evidence they have to provide in the end sometimes is not patient driven at all, or at least it's delivered in a way that it increases or um, decreases the time of processes or 
provides some efficiency gains for hospitals or maybe provides, I don't know, added value for the closest circle of friends or family for the patient. And so, I mean, technically that's still benefiting the patient, but the evidence is not directly patient-centered. And these are also things where the narratives are quite different between the classic healthcare pitch, meet person X, he or she is a patient, and then there's like piano music in the background, whether the evidence sometimes has to paint a broader picture of the benefits that some sort of innovation can generate. And that's also something I really hope that we will see a shift there to talk more, less about emotions and impact and only the patients, but talk about the evidence we need to convince all players in the healthcare system to play along, to adopt these digital innovations, not only to pay for them, but to also use them and also integrate them in their day-to-day life. And there, coming back to what Fabien said earlier regarding um, data privacy or data security, obviously that also increases acceptance for these type of, of technologies, which is almost as important as all the other factors. We almost hit like the 50-minute mark. I think you, you from, from my perspective and what I take away from this is we added two additional points on kind of the hurdle list we just created. One is the CE market reimbursement, the lack of planning or kind of the potential planning, data privacy, as well as focus and lack of focus from time to time, which maybe comes parallel to planning. But yeah. in, in conclusion, what does it mean to kind of when you are a startup or potentially pharma company or medical device already established companies what should the main focus be entering the market we want to reach reimbursement should we just aim at a complete ce market before we even think about read the questions around reimbursement to close the conversation is what are we aiming at and what you see what what will the future bring now yeah, so I think, you know, one recommendation for all, you know, companies, you know, is to uh, look at the big picture. If you want to enter the EU market, you should not only speak, you know, to um, an expert in the regulation of medical devices. You know, you should also talk to an expert on the regulation or the protection, you know, of personal data, you know, or cybersecurity requirements. You should also talk to someone knowledgeable about the reimbursement system in the EU member states, you know, such as uh, Jonas. The idea is to have this discussion very early on, you know, so that you can develop a plan, you know, which is coherent, you know, and to avoid, you know, surprises, you know. If you avoid, avoid surprises, you know, you avoid, you know, big obstacles, you know, hurdles that we discuss. It means you will be able to prepare, you know, prepare not only your team, but also your management and maybe your investors, you know, if you need, you know, uh, two millions, you know, to make, you know, the project, you know, uh, successful, you know, you need to plan that, you know, it's not at the last minute, you know, you announce you need, you know, additional cover, you know, to make, you know, uh, the product to success. But I think that's, that's really my recommendation. And, you know, innovative companies, you know, developing innovating, innovative digital health solution, you know, are very uh, pragmatic, you know, and, and, you know, they think about long-term solutions for patient or skilled professional. I think they should also think about a long-term solution for bringing their product on the market. And I think that's, that's what we discussed today, you know, C-marking, data privacy, reimbursement. Yeah, I think I, I completely agree with what Fabien said. I think that's, that's definitely the road to take and really don't, yeah, don't forget to take the big picture into account because it's so easy to lose yourself in details. What I always like to recommend is to, for, and it doesn't matter whether that's a young startup or an established company or a big pharma that now is trying to spin off or spin out some digital health innovation, but it's always about focus less about how it does it and ask what does it do really in the, in the last small, smallest end instance. Does this innovation, does it save a doctor five minutes in this room in the hospital or does it help a patient lose two kilos over two weeks, two and a half weeks, although they still eat bananas? Really go to the very, very smallest little part that in the end and completely abstracted and away from any type of emotional or agenda or what it should do. No, what does it actually do? And it's completely 
for this purpose and, and it's completely unimportant why or how or in which context and when you really found out what effect and it can be multiple effects that one digital health innovation has doesn't only have to be one and then you map these effects and then you look around in your target environments these can be countries regions these can be single companies hospitals and then you ask around okay these are the things i have an effect on who would benefit from this and who would pay for this why is this separate you are you might ask because usually that's a customer that's the same thing in healthcare it isn't sometimes the patient benefits and the insurance has an interest in paying because the patient benefits or in a consumer market you buy a wearable that monitors your grandmother so you have decoupled value value proposition basically and that's what you have to figure out and if you have then this list of criteria and then you have a list of different stakeholders players call them what you want that could be interested in paying for this then you have your plan of attack and then you can decide okay i want to go to this country i want to get reimbursement or i want to sell this to hospitals and then you can plan your clinical evidence generation and your ce marking process according to the goal where you want to create the most value in the end that was a pretty detailed conclusion of our conversation <laughs> <laughs> we can just cut it down and we are like two in five minutes <laughs> just like, just, uh, podcast before just forget it it's okay this was okay, <laughs> okay. I think we should, I should, but it's good that we just have it in the end so people just because okay <laughs> 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 no, in in all seriousness, I think that was a really good conclusion. Kind of narrowed down what it comes to um, in the near future and where companies should focus on getting their product on the market. So Jonas and Fabian, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day. It was super interesting. Maybe we should um, think about and discuss kind of creating a second part because I think there is a lot we can additionally cover on that topic. Yeah, there's like a million details and I still have like a million questions for Fabian, like in practice, but I didn't want to go too much berserk on the podcast. So some point in the future. <laughs> oh, but that's super cool. Yeah, yeah. Anything else you would like to add? No, no, I'm happy to do another one. You know, we can go deeper into some aspects, you know. Let's see, you know, how the, the podcast is received, you know, and if we have questions, you know, maybe the questions will direct us to do another one you know on specific aspects yeah all right then again uh, thank you very much for taking the time and hopefully we're um, here each other again and on that platform thank you that's it for today if you have further questions for jonas and or fabian i link their bios in the description below if you don't want to miss any new episodes and you haven't subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform. We're going to hear each other in about two weeks, so thank you for tuning in and we're looking forward to have you back when we're talking the cure.